This episode of Tales of True Crime contains adult language and graphic subject matter. Listener discretion is advised. In the first part of this podcast, I told you about the 1977 murder of a man named Jack Whiteley, who was found dead in a Detroit motel room, bound, stabbed multiple times in the chest, his throat slashed. A Louisiana man named Dan Clements pled guilty to the crime and was sentenced to prison. And my mom's brother, my uncle James Dunn, turned out to be his accomplice at the very least, if not a full co-conspirator. If you didn't listen to that podcast yet, I'd urge you to go back and listen to it now before you continue. This is the Tales of True Crime podcast. As a kid, I grew up hearing the story of my Uncle Jim and how he was in prison for murder. The consequences of what he had done infected my upbringing. He always said he wasn't a murderer, just a bad man who got mixed up in the wrong thing and went to prison for something someone else did. And as a result, my parents were always reminding me to be careful who I hung out with. Troy, if they get in trouble, you can get in trouble too. The lessons from my Uncle Jim's bad deeds were always present. And the comparisons to my Uncle Jim popped up every time I got in trouble. However, this isn't a story about me or my family, but more a tale about how and why I became interested in true crime. And I confess, a lot of my interest stems from the process of investigating what my uncle did and trying to understand why he did it. So please bear with me while I tell you the rest of the tale, and then I'll have a brief preview of what you can expect in two weeks when the Tales of True Crime podcast settles into a regular schedule. I never got many details from my parents about the crime that put my uncle Jim in prison. So when I became a young man, I decided I'd ask him myself. We were pen pals, and I wrote to him off and on over the years. And by the time I got to my 20s, I had worked up the courage to ask. His answer to me came in the form of a letter, dated April 1st, 1993. He started by explaining how he was involved in various organizations, the Posse Cumitatis among them. He said... I was involved with such things at one time. Called them radicals, with pretty extreme views and aims. Jim had just been released from federal prison, with no real place to go. I more or less conned my way into an old girlfriend's apartment in Pittsburgh. While living there, a couple of old associates called to see if I was really there and free, and to keep me posted on some of the different group's activities. Needless to say, although I had a place to live, food, and sex, for how long, I don't know, I really didn't have any money or anything to call my own. And a man without any real means of his own, especially a man in the frame of mind I was at that time in my life, wasn't much of a man. I had a couple of money-making offers, non-legal, and after a few days I decided to take up one of the offers, figuring at the time I had little or nothing else to lose. <laughs> how wrong that turned out to be. I called an old associate, not a friend, who seemed to be the one calling the most. Well, I didn't like the guy, you know, I'd known him on and off for years. I thought there might be some easy money in some of his hinted suggestions. The associate was Dan Clements from Louisiana. 
Jim borrowed some money from his girlfriend for a plane ticket. In his letter, he said, I think she was glad to get rid of me, and flew down south. Jim wrote, When I got there, he was full of big plans and ideas, but little else. Still, there I was, so I figured I might as well play the game by ear. If you break down those two sentences, I believe we can see trouble coming. My uncle had borrowed money to fly to Louisiana to meet a schmuck who was all mouth. He got there and realized there was nothing really going on and no money-making opportunity, and his associate probably felt pressured to come up with something because he had promised there was money to be made, and now Jim had arrived. So they went looking for trouble. We did several things, again, none legal. But the thing that brought all this about was a shipment that we were supposed to check into and pick up. The shipment was weapons. Now I've never told anyone this much. So you see, you've gotten the scoop. After stopping in to see an old mob-connected friend in Tom's River, New Jersey, we came up north into Michigan to see a guy about some weapons and maybe picking them up. Apparently, arrangements and talks have been going on for some time, not known to me. While I didn't know the guy, and still don't, I assume it was the guy who ended up getting killed, as the guy who got killed was the vice president of Goss Mechanical Company in Detroit. I say, I don't know if he was the guy, because I sincerely do not. I said not more than 10 words to him, and really was not around him at all. The guy he's talking about is Jack Whiteley. And I feel it's my duty to point out here that we have no way of knowing if any of this is true. The allegation is that Jack Whiteley was somehow involved in dealing weapons. But we have only the word of my uncle, a lifelong sinner. We went to a prearranged meeting place in a real nice bar. And while I sat by myself for about three hours, drinking and playing music on the box, my associate and this guy sat together clear across a crowded room from me. You know, talking, whatever. It wasn't for me to know, so I didn't question it. Jim's letter continued. I was given a sign after a while to leave the bar and head for our motel room, which I did. Shortly thereafter, this guy and my associate come falling into the room. I assume they were drunk out of their minds. Talking, it's party time! <laughs> party my ass, I didn't come to Michigan to party. I think there's some code in that last line. I believe I hadn't come to Michigan to party really means my Uncle Jim was pissed about being kept waiting in the room and was ready to get down to business. He was at home in his role as an enforcer, and when drunk, he reverted to the character he was most comfortable playing. I think that was the moment the confrontation began. Now, I was pretty drunk myself, would have had a hard time finding my ass with both hands, and wasn't paying all that much attention. The next thing I recall is, these two are yelling back and forth. Now, this is about 3am and I can't make any real sense of it. It seems that someone got paid and someone got ripped off, or thought they had. The next thing I know, I'm headed for the bathroom and my associate nails this guy. You guessed it, blew his mug out. That's Jim slang for punched him in the face. Only the guy doesn't go down and stay down. Here I'm half in the bathroom, not knowing what the hell is going on, or whether I should get involved, and these two are going at each other. It was obvious that my associate needed no help anyway. The other guy clearly couldn't handle him. He just wouldn't stay down. Anyway, 
As best as I can remember it, I started across the room to lend my associate a hand until I could find out what was going on. I grab the guy from behind, throw him on the bed, and tell him to chill out before he really gets his ass hurt. But now, the guy wants to fight me. Shit, I don't even know what's going on for sure. So I back up and I look at my associate as if to say, hey, you started this shit, it's not my problem. Next thing I know, my associate has pulled a knife and is on top of the guy in the bed. Even then, I didn't think much of it. Figured he was trying to scare the guy. Not so. He stabbed the guy in the heart and then cut his throat. And there it is. The story, as told by my Uncle Jim, portrays a version of events in which he admits to being involved in illegal things, like dealing weapons, but disavows any involvement in a murder. You'll notice Jim's telling of the tale omits any mention of the details I told you about in Episode 1, of Jack Whiteley being tied up, which essentially shatters the entire premise. It couldn't have happened as quickly as Jim made it seem, and it couldn't have simply been a fight between Dan Clements and Jack Whiteley that got out of hand, because Jack had been tied up before he was brutally murdered. About ten days later, Jim was back in Pittsburgh with Dan Clements waiting in a bar to go to a birthday party for a friend's daughter, and the police came in and arrested them both. Clements pled guilty and went to prison. My Uncle Jim had two mistrials for first-degree murder, but was convicted of second-degree murder in a third trial and began serving a long prison sentence that wore on my grandma for years. She'd made a lot of mistakes when she was young, and many of those mistakes contributed to the more serious ones my Uncle Jim would make, and she took a lot of blame for that on herself. I remember being at my grandmother's house one year at Christmas when I was about 17 years old, and I was sitting on the steps in the kitchen talking to my Aunt Tammy. My Grandpa Bob and my Grandma Ruth were in the kitchen, and we were chatting and listening to Christmas music playing from a clock radio that they kept on top of the fridge. Before I knew what was happening, my grandma had run out of the kitchen sobbing, and my grandpa went after her. Honey, what's the matter? He called after her as he chased her into the next room. This song always makes me think of Jimmy, she sobbed from the other room. I'll Be Home for Christmas by Bing Crosby was playing on the radio. The shadow of my Uncle Jim shaded every occasion, even joyous ones. What kind of man was my uncle, and what would lead him to a life of crime? The question is hard to answer. Jim spent most of his life in and out of reform school, jail, and prison, and I never really got to know him on a deep personal level. As an adult, I only met him once. But I can tell you what I do know. Jim was born to a young, unwed mother in Ohio at a time when being young, unwed, and pregnant was simply unacceptable. Through family history research, I believe his father was a man named Lester Ward, who wanted nothing to do with my grandma after he found out she was pregnant. My great-grandfather reportedly arranged a meeting with Mr. Ward at a home for unwed mothers, where my pregnant grandmother had been sent. There was an exchange of money and Mr. Ward disappeared from the picture. 
my Uncle Jim never knew his father. He developed a problem with authority. He was truant in school. He didn't care much for other people. In prison, he pretended to be a man of virtue and faith. Yes, he was born with two strikes against him, but in his life, he simply made bad choices. He refused to listen to other people who knew better than he did. He wanted to live his life his way, despite not having the tools or the judgment. And he paid for that stubbornness with his freedom. He was held accountable for his failure to humble himself and accept direction. After 33 years in the Michigan penal system, he was granted parole. He moved to North Dakota to care for my grandmother in her waning years. And he lived as a free man for six years without further legal entanglements. He had a stroke and died at the age of 73. That's the story of my Uncle Jim. And it has occurred to me on many occasions as I've told this story that my Uncle Jim doesn't necessarily deserve to be remembered. He was a bad man. In this day and age, we endeavor to remember victims, not perpetrators. And I'll admit, until I started researching this story in 2017, I had never known the name of the man who wound up dead on that Detroit morning in 1977. He was just a nameless man in a story that had always been about my Uncle Jim. It became much more real to me when I learned his name, and in the course of writing this story, I started to feel guilty. I've been pouring out this story of the challenges our family faced with little regard for Jack Whiteley. Actually, we've all been doing it for years. I wonder how many times Jack Whiteley's family cried for him. He never got to come home for Christmas. I wonder how his family will feel if they ever run across this story. If I could apologize to them on behalf of my family, I would, even though I have no part in what happened to him, and nothing anyone could ever say would make up for their loss. In two weeks on the Tales of True Crime podcast, a decades-long crime spree of assault and murder that stretched from Alaska to Washington State to Minnesota, and a perpetrator, a serial killer, who just so happened to be born in the city where this podcast is produced, Fargo, North Dakota. He was sentenced to hang, believe it or not, but through a miscarriage of criminal justice, he was paroled and went on to kill many more times. Today, he's 92 years old, still alive and in prison. Come back in two weeks for another episode of Tales of True Crime. Tales of True Crime is written and produced by Troy Larson for Midwest Radio of Fargo-Moorhead. Follow Troy on Twitter at Sonic Tremors. For tales of true crime on video, follow Midwest Radio of Fargo-Moorhead on YouTube. And don't forget to subscribe. Interloper, Dark Fog, Peace of Mind, and Face Off by Kevin McLeod. Incompetech.com. Creative Commons license via filmmusic.io. Voice of James Dunn by John B.C. Thanks for listening.